Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. It's episode 20 already. Where did that go? And incredibly, we are yet to discuss what is, without doubt, the world's most famous wine region, Bordeaux. So we'll put that right with Master of Wine, Richard Bamfield. We'll talk about what makes it great, and we're talking well beyond red wine here, and also what makes it much more affordable than you might have thought. And if money is perhaps less of an object, then later we'll be hearing about wine investment, the latest trends, where's best to invest and why Italy is one to watch with the fascinating Anthony Maxwell of LiveX. Plus your usual recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Bordeaux, the world's most famous wine region, synonymous with first growths and high prices, but it's a vast region, producing something like 700 million bottles of wine in a typical vintage. So where should you look? So much discussion seems to be around red wine, left bank, right bank and the rest. But Bordeaux offers so much more, including some criminally underrated white wines, up and coming Cremant, and still perhaps a work in progress, in my humble opinion, rosé wines too. And then there's the delectable sweet wines, some of the best in the world. There's so much wine produced that the prices are often less than you might expect. So how to find it? Well, help is at hand with the Bordeaux Hot 50. And who better to explain it than Richard Bamfield, MW. Uh, Richard, uh, thanks for coming back and joining us here on The Drinking Hour. Thanks, David. Lovely to be here again. So first things first, for those unfamiliar with it, uh, tell us what the Bordeaux Hot 50 is. <laughs> so it's a, it, it's a wine selection that has been running for a few years now, uh, run by uh, the, the, the uh, uh, head body, the organisation body in, in Bordeaux, which is its, its intention is to identify wines, Bordeaux wines, available in the UK at affordable price points, so between about eight and £25, which we think represent the best of what Bordeaux is doing at the moment in those price categories. And also, uh, we, we try and indicate the value as well. We do take value into account. And this year, and actually last year, I think we did as well, we're also taking into account what those producers are doing for sustainability as well. Because Bordeaux's really, it, it doesn't necessarily shout about it, but it's actually really been taking a lead on sustainability and encouraging growers all through the area to, to work more sustainably. So tell us a bit about how they're chosen. The wines are importers in the UK and UK retailers are invited to submit wines 
that they think suit the, the criteria I mentioned just now, particularly in terms of price. And they're encouraged to submit wines of, of all styles. So we, you know, we t I know we tend to associate Bordeaux with red wine, but it is about rather more than that. And I think in the past, Bordeaux has undersold itself possibly on, on its dry whites and its rosés and certainly its sparkling. So, so, so importers and retailers are encouraged to, to submit wines in those categories. And then a, a, a group of us have the, well, the, the pleasure really of, <laughs> of tasting through them all and working out which ones we think really stand out. And it was a pleasure. Um, I was one of the judges there this year on your teams, uh, making those uh, selections blind. And it was thoroughly enjoyable and really hard actually to whittle it down. I mean, you know, uh, you might say I would say that, but it genuinely was uh, quite difficult uh, to get it down to the uh, selection that uh, we needed to. Um, you then uh, go through all of the wines afterwards. Um, the quality was really high, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> I say it, I've, I seem to have said it every year for the last 10, 12 years, but the quality has genuinely been improving every year. And I agree with you totally. I think it was very difficult to 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 select the, the, the Hot 50 this year because well, I think we were tasted almost 300 wines altogether. And there were way more than 50 that you would be really proud to serve to friends, serve to serve at dinner. Uh, there are just a lot of really good wines. And it is, it almost seems unfair to whittle them down, but that was our job, so so we had to do it. And uh, I, I think, you know, we, we, we're trying to achieve a, a balance of wines, again, so it's not all reds. Uh, and I, 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 I'd like to think we've achieved that. The, the other aspect of it is, it's not just a question of letting the, the public know which wines we think are exemplary from Bordeaux. It's also the, 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 uh, the CIVB in the UK, they, they, they go to, to food and wine festivals and that sort of thing to exhibit. And they organise their own pop-up wine bars. And the, our decisions help inform which wines they'll show as well. So that it really gives, it gives both retailers and Bordeaux organisations the, the information they need to, to show the wines that, they, that we think best represent what Bordeaux is all about at the moment. So when you looked at the results at the end, um, how did White and Rosé fare? White and Rosé, there are fewer entries in White and Rosé. In terms of production, Bordeaux is still, I'm not sure exactly what the figures are, but I suspect Bordeaux is still around between 85 and 90% red. And so it's not surprising that a majority, you know, a large number of the entries are red. And I, 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 because White and Rosé and particularly Cremont are still getting going in the UK, there still aren't as many importers of these wines as we would like. So there, so there are fewer entries, but at the same time, there are some really good wines. I do think, I, th I think those categories where Bordeaux is very well equipped to compete internationally. You know, a young Bordeaux Sauvignon, it sort of epitomises what Sauvignon is all about in terms of freshness, crispness and pure drinkability. And they can do that with, with Rosé as well. I, if I'm totally honest, I think rosé is the most improved category, but I also think it's the it's the category where I'd like to see most improvement in further improvement, where I actually think the best is yet to come, even though we're already seeing year-on-year -year improvement. And what about Cremont? Because that is still 
a relatively new thing in Bordeaux compared to other French regions, isn't it? Well, it, it is. I mean, it, it, there's, well, I'll get into trouble for saying that because, they, I mean, I think the history of Cremont in Bordeaux goes back, well, well over 50 years to the first half of the 20th century. But most of the production of Bordeaux Cremont was actually in the hands of just one or two companies. And it was primarily sold within Bordeaux, I think, and certainly within France. And it's only in the last, I suppose, 15 years or so that our sales of sparkling wine worldwide have snowballed, that Bordeaux has thought, well, OK, we, we should be able to produce some pretty good Cremont as well. We know a thing about grape growing. We only have hills in terms of winemaking. We should be able to make good Cremont as well. So I think the exciting development has been that you've got far more producers making Cremont now than would have been the case 20 years ago. And again, that's a category where we're seeing improvements and more var variation in style each year, which I actually see as a positive, uh, because I think traditional Bordeaux Cremont has sometimes been a little bit neutral. And I think we're seeing much more personality in the wines now. And there's no question in my mind that the, the best is yet to come. Particularly, as you know, good sparkling wine, it takes time to produce. The sort of method of, of aging it on the lees and the cellars, you know, it takes two or three years in many cases. So it's, it's quite a long lead time for Cremor. And I, I do think that, the, 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 as I say, the best Bordeaux Cremor uh, we will see coming in the, in the, in the next few years. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. I think uh, that was something that I kind of took away from the judging session, actually. Rosé definitely improving, but uh, still in some areas, a, a work in progress. Cremont really exciting, but uh, there's just less of it. But Bordeaux whites are just sensational, aren't they? I suppose the area that I find most exciting is, is actually what Bordeaux has traditionally done, which is the, the oaked blends. You know, there's, with the best one in the world, crisp dry Sauvignon can be produced all over the world relatively successfully. And although I think Bordeaux can compete uh, very effectively and at the price points of, of good crisp Sauvignon Blanc, it's the, it's the oaked blends, the traditional Pessac Leonion style, if you want, that I think Bordeaux does really well. And of course, what we're seeing is that those wines now aren't just being made in Pessac Leonion. We're seeing more white wine being made in the Medoc, in Saint-Emilion, uh, in Lalonde Pomerol and places like that. And this is where I think it's really exciting, where you've got uh, blends of Semillon and Sauvignon, what Bordeaux traditionally does so well, with a little bit of oak. And I think the knowledge of how to use oak uh, effectively and sensitively um, has, has never been better. And so, and that's where I think we're, we're seeing some really interesting wines and wines that are distinctive stylistically from most of what the rest of the world is producing. I give friends of mine who profess not to like Sauvignon, I give them a white Bordeaux. And of course, it's, it's quite easy to do that because it doesn't always have the great varieties on the, the label. <laughs> and they say, oh, my God, this is delicious. What is this? And I wait till they've got to finish their glass. And then I say, well, I'm, you've actually drunk majority Sauvignon Blanc, by the way. But I think there's just that, uh, that wonderful uh, kind of complexity there, especially with some oak, as you say, uh, that just transcends what people think about 
uh, generally as Sauvignon because they have in their head something that you get from the Loire or or from Marlborough in in New Zealand, and it's it's just a, a, a different drink, isn't it? Uh, it, it? It really is, and I, and this is where I'd I'd, I'd like to see, and it's it, to be honest, I'm encouraged to see Bordeaux playing to what I see as its strengths. Don't get me wrong. I think there is a market for single varietal wines from Bordeaux, both red and white, and I, I'm sure we will see more of those, particularly in the red arena in, in the coming years. But Bordeaux, historically, is all about blends. A lot of the skill of the winemakers is in managing those blends of grapes, red and white. And, and with white, yes, I, I think that's where Bordeaux has a point of difference, and I'm, I'm glad to see it sort of... Uh, benefiting from that and maximising its its advantage from that. I don't think I'll pull the wool over your eyes if you're ever at my house, but um, I certainly managed to do that with them. Um, oh, so David, must... David, the thing is, I drink everything, you see. I, 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 just, <laughs> I enjoy wine generally, even though I do have a soft spot for Bordeaux. I would, um, I'd be terrified pouring you a, a, a glass of wine, I think, at my house. But um, I, I still encounter people who are... Um, a bit wary of Bordeaux wines, um, not for quality reasons, but for price reasons, because um, they're just a little bit scared. They think of the 1855 classification um, and they think of first growths and second growths and the like. And they just assume that the red wines are going to be horribly expensive. And of course, that's just as this Hot 50 demonstrates. It's just very far from the reality, isn't it? Well, it, it, it really is. I, I think Bordeaux has had a, it's, it's so difficult because on the one hand, Bordeaux wants to communicate through initiatives like the Hot 50, what good value the wines are. And so that will attract a certain amount of attention. But also the Grand Cru Classes, the most expensive wines in Bordeaux, they're also doing their own publicity and they attract a certain amount of attention, a lot of attention in many circles. And so a lot of what one reads about in the media is directed towards the more expensive wines. So that you know the, 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 the hype around the most expensive wines in Bordeaux, you know, sort of is, is greater than well, certainly the volume produced, uh, and is is probably disproportionate. And I, I think it there is a risk that it gives the wrong impression. Um, and that's, I suppose, it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm proud to be involved with Hot, Hot 50, because I am really keen to show that Bordeaux competes really well at this, the sort of 8 £25 price, price point that I mentioned earlier. Don't get me wrong, that's not inexpensive wine. You know, that is already quite a premium price point. But as, you know, growing numbers of people begin to appreciate wine, I think they are prepared to pay that. And if they, if, they, if they know they're going to get something a little bit special, they are prepared to pay those prices. And Bordeaux is really good in that sector. And it's, you know, they, one of the reasons over the last 30 or 40 years is that the, the top wines, the Cru Classes being successful, is because they can afford to take the extra steps in the vineyard and in cellars to be really meticulous and make, you know, almost perfect wines from perfect grapes. And that technology hasn't always been at the fingertips of the, of the estate selling wine at the, at the more moderate prices. But in, in recent years, you know, the knowledge has improved, the technology improved, the prices of technology have come down in some cases. And just the, you know, the, the ability to make the most of what they've got available has, has improved. 
And I, I think the benefits of all of that has filtered down. And we're now seeing wines, you know, in those mid price points that, to my mind, they taste like the real thing. The Holy Grail, David, I think we'd agree, the Holy Grail for wine lovers like ourselves who are positioned to possibly influence a bit is to find wines that taste like the real thing, that taste like the crew classes, but at half the price. That's what we really, you know, I mean, that's what, I, what excites me. And that's what we can do with Hot 50. We can taste it. I, I was I was seeing that in the tasting notes. I was seeing from the panels this, you know, this this tastes this tastes plush. This tastes really top quality. And you can find the taste of the, I think, the highest class wines at lower price points much more consistently now than was possible before. I was really struck by the accessibility of the wines. So, and that's, I suppose, a bit of a buzzword, but just... The, there's nothing um, intimidating or austere. Uh, it's not, they're not wines that you'd think, oh, that might be good in a year or so. They're really inviting now. But you're right, and they were, they were a joy to taste, weren't they? Because they are, there is a lot of pleasure in them right now. I, I, I think that's down to, a, a, to, to three factors, possibly. One is <laughs> market forces, um, you know, that Bordeaux has seen that more accessible styles of wine from other parts of the world have been extremely popular and so have taken that on board. Secondly, the, uh, I think Bordeaux has, has learnt how to manage the winemaking and picking dates better to produce that style of wine. And thirdly, we, we can't discount climate change. You, you know, most of the wines we were tasting at that tasting were from the four recent vintages. Um, and 16, or uh, yes, yeah, five recent vintages, in fact, and 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and even 15. You know, these these were good, ripe vintages in Bordeaux, the, just the sort of vintages that can produce more accessible styles. So I don't think it's a surprise that we're seeing Bordeaux uh, more successful now with that style of wine than maybe was the case before. You mentioned climate change, and it's interesting that, as you say, uh, Bordeaux is doing quite a lot. Some of it under the radar, slightly, maybe compared to other regions. What kind of things have you seen in terms of sustainability that you've been impressed by? I think, well, to be honest, <laughs> what I've been super impressed by is the, is the structure they've put in place. Uh, a very good friend of mine, and I'm not sure I'm allowed to mention names here, but I don't see why I shouldn't, is a, a chap called Philippe Bardet, who uh, has estates in Castillon and Saint-Emilion. And I used to go and visit him three or four times a year, many years. And he's been at the forefront of sustainability in Bordeaux, not just organics, sustainability, genuine sustainability, working uh, socially with the, the community as well. And, and he was involved with the CIVB in Bordeaux, the, the organisational body, right from the start in terms of putting in a management process in place to help growers all over Bordeaux understand what sustainability meant and giving them the steps, helping them identify the steps they could take, the low-hanging fruit in a way, to become more sustainable. You've got to start somewhere. And if you set the if you set these sites too high, you're going to exclude people from the start. And Philippe and his team at the, at the CIVB they did a brilliant job of engaging hundreds, possibly thousands, of producers around Bordeaux 
in their initiative to become more sustainable. And that was the, that was the start of it. And then Bordeaux got quite involved with uh, HVE, Haute Valeur Environnementale, which one sees on more and more uh, labels of French wine, particularly from Bordeaux. And that's a, a government-organised uh, um, agricultural project for, for more sustainable agriculture. And Viticulture in Bordeaux has got involved in that. And we hear stories every day of more uh, of senior estates of crew classes going organic or biodynamic. That's quite difficult in Bordeaux. Bordeaux hasn't got an easy climate to be organic or biodynamic, but it is possible for the right properties. But I think the key thing is sustainability, because organics for smaller growers, it may be a lofty aim, but it's quite difficult to make it economically sustainable. And what I like about the, the initiatives that Bordeaux have put in place for the majority of producers it's, this, it's the fact that the, 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 the measures they're encouraging are not just better for the environment, but they can ensure that growers remain profitable as well. And that's critical. We, we shouldn't be ashamed of saying that wine producers should be allowed to make money too. Absolutely. And it's just finally one of the perceptions uh, that I think I had for a long time around Bordeaux was uh, that you'd expect to find uh, people in kind of um, hunting jackets and red trousers and the like and and when you go to the region and you meet the winemakers there it's a vast region obviously producing a huge amount of wine and there are uh, some really young exciting dynamic producers that you meet there aren't there there are and i, I know it, it, it's <laughs> it sounds I, I know i say it in other parts of the world as well in other parts of france that you know that, that there's a younger generation coming through and i guess we've We've probably always said it in a way, oh, look at the younger generation, they're, you know, they're challenging the norms. But it is true. <laughs> one, can't, one can't deny it. And you can see there is, there, I, I, I'd like to think that's always the case. There is an energy, a dynamism, a questioning of um, parents' traditions amongst the younger generation, which is, which, which is wholly admirable. I think what, what excites me about it as well as at the moment is that it's not just a challenging of traditions in terms of how you grow grapes and how you make wine. It's a challenge in terms of the planet as well. And, you know, I, I do, th I, I, I genuinely, I think most of the research shows this, that in many Western countries, and I'm sure, I suspect countries all over the world, the younger generation do have a, they have a conscience and they, they do care about the planet possibly because they're a little alarmed about the state that my generation is leaving it in. And, uh, and, I, you know, and I think that's another aspect of the younger generation. They don't just want to make better wine, they want to do it the right way as well. Well, there's a good place to leave it, and uh, let's hope that they're successful in doing that. Um, the Hot 50 results, it was fascinating going through them. There are some fantastic wines there. I would urge uh, anyone who... Uh, has an interest in wine to take a to look at these and to look at the value that there is there as well. Uh, Richard, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you very much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. That's a pleasure, David. Always a, a nice, way, nice uh, time to have a chat. And, uh, well, I hope that we will, you never know, you know, the day might come soon when we can actually meet up in Bordeaux as well as in the UK sometime. That will so. be wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> let's hope so. Thanks very much. Goodbye. In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. 
Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for our first selection of medal-winning drinks from the IWSC 2021 Awards. And, well, we really have to start with Bordeaux, don't we? Here's an easily accessible example. We were talking about uh, that accessibility in that hot 50. Uh, Tesco finest Margot de Boyd 2015, an excellent vintage. Uh, this is made by Chateau Boyd Cantonac. Uh, it won an IWSC silver medal with the judges saying, perfumed and classic nose with hints of graphite, good weight to the cassis, sweet spice and cherry fruit. Good concentration supported by ripe tannins. And it's a bit of a bargain for anything with Margot written on it. Uh, it's £22 at Tesco. A classic sweet wine next. As I said, they make some of the best in the world. I don't say dessert wine out of interest. Uh, I say sweet wines because I think they work equally well with cheeses and with pâtés and meats. It's Waitrose number one Chateau Soudureau 2013 Sauterne and it won a silver medal. The famous chateau dates back to the 15th century. The judges said, good typicity here. By the way, typicity, if you don't know that expression, it just means it's a great example of uh, the distinctive qualities you'd expect to find uh, in a wine. They said, luscious and sweet with dried floral, marmalade, honey and botrytis notes. Crisp acidity and a vanilla oak spice provide both structure and complexity. This is also a bargain. It's only a half bottle size, as sweet wines tend to be. It's $16.99 at Waitrose. And Richard was waxing lyrical about Cremant just now, a relatively recent phenomenon in Bordeaux compared with some other regions. Uh, So here's a gold medal winner to complement it. So this isn't a Cremant. This is actually a classic French liqueur with which you can make a Kier Royale. Uh, You can make it with champagne if you're uh, feeling splashy, but Cremel does a great job, I think. Creme de Cassis de Dijon from Gabriel Boudier, a gold medal winner. Uh, Based in Dijon since 1874, they're well known for their range of liqueurs and flavoured spirits. Uh, The judges said, vibrant cassis and fresh blueberry aromas lead the way to a richly textured palate. Refreshing flavours of tangy black currant and an underlying earthy character with black pepper and hints of moss adding complexity on the finish. Impressive balance throughout. Sounds like the perfect ingredient for that uh, wonderful Kia Royale. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Buy a fine wine, cellar it and you'll get to enjoy it years later or maybe you'll make a tidy profit. Well, that's the theory at least, but what's the reality? There are stories of plenty of investors who bought wine at low prices, then sold it years later, making a fortune. The on-premier or in-bond market, that's the market for those who buy before a wine is bottled based on the first signs of a particular vintage, is still buzzing. 
Uh, back in the day, it seemed to be limited to Bordeaux, maybe Burgundy, but not anymore. So what's the reality of the market for fine wine and, and how has it withstood the turbulence of recent economic shocks? Well, Anthony Maxwell is a director of LiveX, the index that measures such things. Um, Anthony, thanks very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Not a problem, David. Good morning. You're going to explain uh, LiveX far better than me. Uh, so tell us uh, what it does and, and why it's important. I think you, you allude to the, the index side of it. That's one element of what we do. I mean, what LiveX is, is a glo global marketplace for the fine wine trade, um, which uh, was started in 2000. Um, we have around 550 merchants globally, um, and what we offer them is data, um, trading and fulfillment. Um, so, you know, that's what our, our, our membership and our customers use us for. You know, they come to us for the data. What is the price? Real time live pricing. They come to buy and sell wine and then for the logistic services that we that we offer behind that. And I think, you know, why does it matter? Um, what LiveX brings is to a traditionally opaque market and arguably inefficient market. It brings transparency and it brings independence to this market, which in turn builds confidence, um, which then makes for a bigger and more efficient market as more, you get more participants if you've built that trust um, to the market. So those are the sort of things it's trying to turn a, a traditionally sort of opaque market into a, a bit more into the market of today. Okay, so how long then has wine been traded? And longer term, has it proven to be a good investment? Traded, I guess there's evidence of going back thousands of years of, of the Greeks and Egyptians trading wine with each other, Port and Madeira more recently. If you look at the Christie's archives, I think there were significant amounts of claret being traded between Bordeaux and London. I guess for investment purposes, Slightly, the, the, the big turn, I think, for that was probably the border on Primer system, which really came out uh, post the Second World War at a stage where growers were looking of, for ways to sort of finance uh, their crop because they were, they were making the wine but not releasing it. And so they wanted to try and get money up front for that. And, and the Negociant on Primer system came out of that. Then also in the UK side, you've got the in-bond system you alluded to earlier, which, which allows for, for storing of wines, buying and storing and selling of wines whilst remaining in bonds. So before duty and VAT are applicable. And then I guess more recently, when well the 2000s, you've had, you had the sort of growth of wine funds, um, which came along and, and looked at um, professional money being involved uh, in, in the wine trade. So that's the sort of time frame of it uh, in, a, in a sort of snapshot i mean whether or not it's been a good investment you know there again as you said in, in your introduction um there are those stories of people who've bought you know and and made significant sums from it i think if you look at the data certainly our data we we've got our, our longest running index is the is the livex investables index which going back 30 years or so has given us compound average annual return of just under 10%. So that's the sort of things you're looking at. The LiveX 100, which is our more current or more, more recent the industry benchmark index is up 30% over the last five years. And I think the key thing is it's, if you look at the underlying behind that, it tends to, the wine market tends to, to move without significant volatility.
I was going to say there's been incredible turbulence. If you go back to the global financial crisis just over a decade ago, and then since then, the Brexit referendum and then the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, real shocks to the economy. But it sounds like wine has withstood that pretty well from what you're saying. Yes, um, broadly and arguably quite surprisingly, really. Um, we in, in the trade have had, have had all of that. I think it's been, whether it's, as you say, COVID and, and Brexit um, um, considerations, there's also been a US tariff um, uh, imposed on French and, and, well, not all, but, but most French and, and certain other European wines of 25%. That's now finished. So it's had a lot, the industry's had a hell of a lot thrown at it in the last um, two years or so. But again, it's proved surprisingly resilient, very subdued volatility. Um, our broadest measure, you know, the LiveX 1000 is, is up about 8% in the last eight, 18 months. So it's not huge. But if you look at the chart, it, it didn't really fall significantly. Um, and, and it's proved fairly resilient. I, I think, as we've as, as it's been well documented, the sort of move to working from home and online shopping has been a big boost for the wine trade as a whole. But that's also been set against, you know, considerable um, headwinds for the for the on trade and the hospitality sector of the wine trade. What is the primary appeal of wine to those who uh, invest in it? Uh, is it the thought that actually, um, if you buy something really special, you could, if you want to, drink it? That has always been um, one of the the phrases. Uh, that's been used. I think having something tangible, people um, do enjoy that, do like that. It is also wine. It's something you can get emotionally and and, and really involved in, which is which has been um, significant element of that. I think those days of, of you know buying two cases, selling one, drinking the other for free, it's not quite so simple nowadays. Um, but it has, you know, looking at the data, and I think this is what's interesting for, for, for private clients around the world, is they can get accurate data um, on this now, which builds trust and confidence. People are looking for alternative assets. And there is also the evidence that, that wine is a, is a good um, hedge against inflation. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, if you're buying wine, it is an expensive pastime, fine wine. And part of the fun is if there's an investment angle, you know, that can subsidise your, your, your pastime. <laughs> good, good thinking. Uh, <laughs> what about the different wines that have performed well? Because um, I think it's fair to say for a while, um, it was all about Bordeaux uh, and then bang, in comes Burgundy. Um, but it's uh, beyond those two Bs now, isn't it, as well? Yes, I think you're, I think you're right. I think what we've seen is a huge broadening of the market. Um, in terms of uh, the regions being bought and sold, yeah, even within the, the existing regions of, as you say, the two Bs, Bordeaux and Burgundy, wines are being traded further down uh, the chain. There are new wineries, of course, new regions. I mean, we're even trading on Livex now English wine, um, which is excellent to see, um, mm. and Chinese wine. Um, but the significance broadening of the market. So whilst you know Bordeaux led the way, then Burgundy, since then, it's been Italy, it's been Champagne. It's always, to a certain extent, been Champagne. But even this year, I think more and more is, is the USA and California. 
but across the board, uh, 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 strength in the market. And I recently wrote um, at some length about the success of Italian fine wines, which is a, a newer phenomenon. Um, and the LiveX data was fantastically useful uh, for that. Tell us a bit about the, Itali- the market for Italy. I think it's current um, upturn and and recognition is is really well deserved and long overdue i mean i personally worked for um, a merchant before called uh, john armit wines and john armit in the 80s and 90s who was quite a visionary merchant he he was importing and he was the agent in the uk for these wines like sasakaya ornelia gaia giacosa and as a young kid entering the trade i thought it was all you know mainstream Bordeaux brands but you know we got to taste these wines and go and visit the regions and the wines certainly amongst the staff always had huge followings it took some time to to sort of get that out to 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 the market and so they are making great wines they have great terroir they are getting very good and well deserved as I say critical acclaim Um, the brands are very strong nowadays and and I think people are also looking you know, to experiment a bit more as they get further into the wine trade or into the wine market. People look initially for Bordeaux, then as you suggest, they go to Burgundy and then they look for other things to to capture their imagination and and, and to buy and to to taste and to drink. But fundamentally, the wines are great. And if they are great and people drink them, they will come back for more. And you alluded to uh, California there. We've just talked about Italy. Um, Any sort of newer trends that you're seeing just emerging at the moment in terms of uh, investment potential? Uh, Champagne is, is, is a phenomenal success. It has been for a while, but I think it the worldwide global demand for champagne is, is on the up, is increasing significantly. So the top champagne cuvées from the top houses um, and also pink champagne. You know, if you actually dig deeper, the pink, pink champagne, rosé champagne is, is, is really on a, on a roll at the moment. Um, and those champagne houses have considerable marketing budgets and considerable distribution. So that is an area that is being somewhat surprising, I guess. Um, but I would, you know, caution against always looking for something new. I, my, my suspicion is Bordeaux will come back. Uh, you know, they make too many great wines. There are too many world-renowned brands. And the top vintages of Bordeaux in the market, uh, uh, for 2016 Bordeaux, for example, something like that, for me, if you're looking. And, and wine investment needs to be looked on a sort of five-year term plus. Uh, I think Bordeaux is... is, is don't discount or, or, you know, count it out at all. So if I was going to dip my toe into uh, wine investment, uh, although you, you don't sell wine at LiveX and you don't give a official advice, I appreciate that. What, what um, advice sort of informally would you give me? As you say, we don't sell wine as such. I would, I would advocate research. I think the information is out there now. It's never been a, a better time to to look at wine for investment in terms of the amount of information available so so i I would really advise research i would go in with a this is not a quick to make making a quick buck it's a five-year term thing minimum i would make sure that your you research again the merchant you're buying for you need to be buying from a reputable merchant Um, this is it's really important and then i think the important thing to from an investment, a purely investment angle, 
and and I don't think the majority of people buy from a purely investment angle. I mean, I think that's a very small minority. But but people, you know, also have an eye on the upside. Let's say when they're buying it. But I would make sure you consider the sort of associated costs because it's gonna you're gonna want to leave it in bond, which is gonna be storage and insurance of about let's say ten pounds a case per year. So that's immediately over a five year term, fifty pounds. So you don't want to be buying cases at 120, even 200, maybe even 300 pounds a case because you're obviously eating into your return there. So you've got to think about the associated cost. I think that's really important. And clearly, as well as buying from a reputable merchant, buying stock that's in perfect condition, in bond, perfect condition, original cases are all really important. And the brands, you know, buy, buy things that are well-renowned, that, that will be able to be resold because... That is one of the things the, the industry traditionally, I think it's changing more, has struggled with is, is liquidity. And I mean liquidity in terms of easy to buy, not necessarily so easy to sell. So buying reputable brands um, alleviates some of that. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for the advice, uh, although I know it's not official advice. Um, and exactly. uh, it's fascinating to, to, to chat to you. Um, and to hear about uh, what uh, LiveX does as well. Anthony, thank you for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Not a problem. Thanks, David. Good to speak to you. Been a pleasure. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. And it's just time for our second medal-winning selection from the IWSC Hall of Fame. These are 2021 winners. We were talking back then with Anthony about the growing influence of China on the global wine market. Well, here's a Chinese gold medal winning wine. Dongfang 2018 from Junding Winery Company is a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, the Bordeaux varieties, from Shandong, the largest wine region in the country, halfway between Beijing and Shanghai. It's about the same size as the American state of Georgia, uh, to give you a bit of context, so it's pretty enormous. Worth a visit, apparently, just to see classic French chateau reconstructed in the Chinese countryside. Giving their gold medal, the judges said, fascinating on the nose, with smoked hay and brewed tea, delightfully entwined with ripe blackcurrant, zesty apples and hints of soaked raisin, deliciously rich and full-bodied, with wonderful notes of raspberry, blackcurrant, cherry and raisins, delivering poise and elegance. Next, a rosé, or really I suppose it should be a risotto, from northern Italy. Uh, Chiaretto Rosé 2020 from Azienda Agricola Giovanni Tantini won a silver medal, a rosé version of Bardolino from the province of Verona. The judges commented, refreshing acidity and fresh clean fruits, watermelon, raspberry, strawberry, lemon and fruit candy, silky plush, creamy mouthfeel with a dry hint of salinity. Sounds delicious. And let's round off with uh, one of my favourites, uh, though perhaps not at the height of summer, more of a, an autumn, winter, spring wine, I think, a Chateau Neuf du Pape. Chateau Fortier, Reserve 2019, Chateau Neuf du Pape, won a silver medal. The estate dates back to the mid 18th century and it's still family owned. The judges said powerful and broad, but retains agility. It has a lovely viscosity and weighty mid-palate with a concentration of licorice and cacao supported by ripe and pleasantly grippy tannins. 
Sounds great, and that's imported by Halgarten, so expect to find it in good independent wine stores. And that is it for another episode of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. You can follow me, Mr. Venusaurus, on Instagram and Twitter. If you liked what you heard and you're listening on iTunes, uh, do please give us a good review too, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you very much. Uh, For now, though, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.